Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. We all know military life can present challenges for a family. Having to constantly move from one city to another can lead to child care issues, as well as trouble for the military spouse to find a job at a new location. Way above the national average, military spouses register an unemployment rate, more than 20%. Since 2009, an organization called Blue Star Families is trying to help military families navigate the challenges they will undoubtedly face. Co-founder and CEO of Blue Star Families, Kathy Roth-Duque, recently talked with Federal Drive executive producer Eric White. We support military and veteran families. Obviously, the well-being of military families, top of mind, financial security, and that means military spouse employment is a number one issue. But it really speaks to our overall military and national security, too because the ability for military families to have financial security enables the service member to stay and keep serving when the family doesn't have financial security. This is number one reason why otherwise promotable people leave, is to get those two incomes that most American families need that's so hard to get when you're serving in the military. Blue Star Families, we shone a light on this issue first back in 2010, 2011. Others, the DOD, other organizations have validated our finding consistently. Military spouses have had an unemployment rate in the 20 to 26 percent level consistently ever since then. As unemployment has improved for the nation, it has not for military families. And honestly, despite all of the money that has been spent and attention that's been spent on the last 10 years, it has not improved. Is opening up the idea of, you know, as more jobs become accessible, not necessarily having to work in a location could be very, very helpful for folks that are told to pick up and move every so often. Do you foresee that maybe more telework could be the answer to finally getting those numbers down? Yes, I do. I think this is exactly the kind of intervention that's going to make a difference. You know, Blue Star Families, we look at not only the problems, but what are the likely solutions? And what we see people telling us, well, you know, first of all, it's the military lifestyle that's the barrier to work. Because military spouses twice as educated as their civilian counterparts. These are really work-ready people. But the frequent moves, the work service members' job responsibilities, and the lack of childcare that comes along with those frequent moves are the real barriers. Setting childcare aside, because that is for many people the number one issue. In our surveys, military spouses identify remote work as being the number one thing that would help them work the way they want to. 69 percent of military spouses in our survey say that they would like to work remotely. And then when we ask those who have jobs that are amenable to telework, not every job is, right? School teacher can't telework. Nurse can't telework. But if you are in a profession that could allow for teleworking, like, you know, radio personality, for instance, or a nonprofit executive, for instance, 85% of spouses who have those kinds of professions say they would like to telecommute and they are not telecommuting. So you all are obviously supporting the Telework Reform Act that has been brought forth in the Senate. What specifically about it do you all favor other than, you know, them saying, yes, we support this? How would it actually get military spouses in those roles with the federal government where telework is okay? Yeah, the Telework Act is a fantastic act. We 100% support it. By targeting military spouses as a particular class, to get these jobs, it makes it much easier for people to navigate the federal hiring system, which as you may know, is a very cumbersome process. And I think it helps the hiring authorities cut through some of the confusion on the part of the hiring managers to find those folks. 
federal jobs are great jobs for military spouses. We're already involved in serving the nation as military families. So serving the government is very compatible, uh, tend to be very mission-driven people. It works well with the overall family lifestyle. So this job, by focusing on the federal government, does something that Congress can do. Can't do that very easily with the private sector, but you can affect the government. And then the government can create standards that can help the private sector follow. And that's something that we at Blue Star Families are doing. We are going to be on December 6th unveiling an effort to challenge the private sector to follow along with the progress that's been made on the government sector to make jobs, create the conditions in private sector jobs to allow military spouses to work, to allow for the kind of security, stability, prosperity and freedom we need for those private sector companies to thrive. Yeah, you know, telework exploded, obviously, during and now in the after days of the pandemic. I'm curious on what you all were hearing from military spouses. You said, you know, the numbers didn't really change. Were they really not affected as much by the pandemic as well, just because, you know, they weren't already in roles that would have been closed down due to it? I think that's a great point, Eric. They weren't already in those roles that would have been closed down. So they were, you know, they were facing that unemployment. The child care still is a problem. Even if you're working remotely, you still need child care. You can't do your job if, if you have to mind your children too. You know, one of the things we point out is that there's a lot of interlocking issues, but we can solve them. The wide availability of telework and the ease of the families being able to find that work is an important step to getting us to where we need to be. All right. And so let's focus on Congress. You talked about something that's in Congress that you all are in favor of. There is a possibility of another shutdown coming. I'm curious on what your organization's stance was on that and how that may also affect the military family with the uncertainty that comes with that. Yeah, I mean, we're vigorously fighting the idea of a a shutdown vigorously because it is devastating to military families. First of all, a third of military families have less than $3,000 in savings, and that will not get you through a month of not getting paid. That will not allow you to pay your rent and your childcare if you have it or your food bill. So then everything goes on credit cards. A lot of times things are on credit cards already because that's where they go when you move. And so you then create a, a financial crisis for people. But even more than that is the psychological discouragement that our civilian leaders aren't able to do their job. You know, when people, families like mine, families like the 275,000 members of Blue Star Families feel like we're willing to put everything on the line to do our job for this nation. And yet these folks in Congress are not able to just do their job. The very basic part of their job is to pass a budget. We're not telling you what that should look like, just pass it. Because it's not just the salaries, it's also having the missions frozen, having the trainings frozen, having the resupply of arms frozen. These are the, the building blocks of how we do our job. And then on top of it, this devastating so-called promotion block is really a leadership block. I think you saw this terrible thing that our commandant collapsed, holding down two jobs because we haven't been able to properly promote people while we've got war breaking out all over the world, had a role to play in that. You think having the fifth fleet in the Mediterranean without a commanding officer able to be promoted. So all these things undermine the military and their families' sense that we should be putting ourselves on the line for this political leadership. We need to straighten this out. And just finishing up on other things that you all are hoping for, I was hearing a recurring pattern of childcare. Um, there yeah. has been some movement in the Pentagon to try and get more childcare options available to military families, but what are you all looking for on that front uh, when you talk to leadership in uh, Washington? 
Yeah, we have a very exciting initiative that we've been exploring that we're not quite ready to unveil, but I'm I'm looking forward to when we can, and, and Eric, you'll be among the first that we let know about it. I think it's time for us to face that this isn't a little fix. It's a structural issue throughout the country, but certainly for our military, 30% of the people coming into the military are female. We do need to have a next generation. We need to let people have children. <laughs> we need to work when we have children, right? So we have an idea. We've been working on it with some of our friends in Congress and some of our partners in the White House. We think it'll create structural change along the lines of the way that the GI Bill created structural change. So we think it's time for bold solutions. Stand by. Yeah. And not to mention most people who join the military do it because their mom or dad served, right? Yeah. Yeah. If we want that future class of military people, we're going to have to give birth to them. Kathy Roth Duque is the co-founder and CEO of Blue Star Families. She talked with Federal Drive executive producer Eric White. To find this interview at our website, go to federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that, I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? 
Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.